0: what I want to be at the end of turning those pages is moved in some way. Whether it's moved to laugh, whether it's moved to cry, whether it's moved to scream, you know, I I want to be moved at the end of reading something. So uh, that's the goal, no matter what the genre is.
1: Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off-topic. Today I talk with television writer and producer LaToya Morgan, who's been a staff writer on TV dramas like Showtime's Shameless and NBC's Parenthood. She's currently under contract as a writer and producer for AMC, where she develops new shows for the network and currently co-produces and writes for the martial arts action series Into the Badlands. Now, I met LaToya last fall at the Austin Film Festival, where the script for a baseball sports drama I had written was a finalist in the festival's screenwriting competition, and I found her memorable for two main reasons. First, it turned out that her father attended the same South Central Los Angeles high school where my father had cut his teeth as a science teacher back before I was born. We talk about that a little bit at the beginning of the interview. But as much as anything, LaToya stood out among the festival's other professional TV and film writers for her unpretentious openness to all the aspiring screenwriters in attendance, myself included. I met her at a TV writing roundtable, and I found her perspective on the industry to be really helpful and insightful. And She actually shares a lot of that insight here. As it happens, LaToya is very much a rising star in the world of television writing. I'm sure you'll hear her name a lot in the future. And one of her strengths as a writer is versatility. For example, AMC recently tapped her to develop a series based on the book They Can't Kill Us All, which is journalist Wesley Lowry's nonfiction account of the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement. But AMC has also tasked LaToya with developing a series based on Hugh Howey's Wool, a decidedly fictional post-apocalyptic sci-fi book. Our conversation touches on these different genres of storytelling as we trace LaToya's career from her childhood in South Los Angeles up through her experiences behind the scenes in television writers' rooms and shooting sets. Hers is a story that will resonate with anyone interested in making their creative ambitions a reality. Our conversation actually starts by comparing notes about our father's experiences in South Central Los Angeles. Let's listen in. My father taught in South Central Los Angeles in mid-1960s, and in talking it turns out that your father went to Fremont High in South Central Los Angeles in the 1970s.
0: Yes, and that's one of the things that we uh, bonded over when we talked later after the roundtables. We had a great discussion.
1: Yeah, I had just been to the 50th reunion of his students, the class of 67. And so I was sort of sort of stoked by that experience. And it was fun to meet somebody else who had a connection to that. Um, and then as a travel writer, I'm always interested in how place informs people's lives. And I think oftentimes Hollywood has this reputation as the place where, you know, the big shots from New York or Chicago or even Ohio or Florida will come to live their Hollywood dream. But um you're actually from greater Los Angeles. And oftentimes those Hollywood dream stereotypes don't often apply to the South Los Angeleses of the world, even though they should. And so in the course of the interview, I'll be curious to know how uh, coming up in that part of Los Angeles has influenced you as a writer. But keeping in mind uh, where you grew up, I'm curious to know just what your relationship was to television growing up and when you first dreamed that you might write for television.
0: Well, that's a really good and very big question to start. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I just loved writing since I was a little kid. Um, My mom was a single mom and it was just me and my brother and her. We were the three musketeers and I loved to read and to write little short stories and plays and I would make my little brother be in them (laughs) when we would perform, perform them for my mom. And I just love the written word. And fortunately for me, I had a mother who was very indulgent. And so if I wanted, you know, one book or the latest Stephen King novel, she would make sure to get that and then some. So I fell in love with that.
1: That's awesome. How... How young were you when you were reading Stephen King? Because my mom, I had to get him from my aunt. My mom didn't approve of Stephen King.
0: <laughs> you know, I I got to say, the I started reading horror probably at like 9 or 10. But I, I was always writing stories since I was about 6 or 7. And um, like I said, my mom was great about giving me the leeway to do that. And when I first decided that I wanted to... Through television was really after watching, they had an annual uh, Twilight Zone marathon, and it still happens now. But I would watch these crazy episodes of The Twilight Zone and be terrified out of my mind. And I would look at the end credits and it would say, you know, written by usually like Rod Serling or Charles Bowman or Richard Matheson, these great writers. And I just remember wanting to be able to capture that feeling that I felt. Um, and maybe one day put it on the screen.
1: Awesome. Um, this is a complete aside, but are you a fan of Black Mirror?
0: I'm a huge fan of Black Mirror. It is an incredible series, and I'm glad that someone figured out a way to update it. I think the Twilight Zone is such a tricky thing because you know it was done so well back in the day um, that this new modern twist that Black Mirror does has been really great.
1: Yeah, it's, it's one of my favorites. And sometimes I, I feel like I dream Black Mirror episodes. You know, they just seem so predictive of how we live now that it's a lot of fun. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, so you read Stephen King books. Did you have any favorite shows that you watched besides The Twilight Zone on, on television?
0: Uh, I had a ton. You know, I, I watched a lot uh, because I was the babysitter. <laughs> and so when my mom was at work, I got to uh, decide what was on the television so if i wasn't watching classic films i love turner classic movies if i wasn't watching betty davis or humphrey bogart or um any of those guys i was uh usually watching some kind of dark science fictiony stuff so i always like to say that the x-files is the reason that i wanted to truly become a, a writer uh, and I think that is probably the most influential television show that I watched when I was coming up
1: I haven't seen the reboot have you are you familiar with the reboot is it is it something that... I
0: have you know because I'm one of those super fans so I have seen it
1: <laughs> <laughs> is that something um, that you would have tried to write for or, or was that reboot no. okay
0: not because I didn't I mean look there's some problems with that <laughs> reboot in the in the backstory mythology that they sort of undid with the new incarnation of the, of the series. But I would not have wanted to write on that show only because I loved it so much. I, I probably would have been an oozing bowl of jello just to <laughs> write words that Julian Anderson and David Duchovny would say because I loved that show that much.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I haven't returned to uh the twi- uh, not the Twilight Zone to to the X-Files since, but I haven't heard a lot about it, so I so I wonder if maybe it uh hasn't caught on quite as much. Now, uh a lot of the shows that you're mentioning not a lot of black faces on them. Um mm-hmm. did you did that feel weird? Did, that, did you feel a little bit like there was sort of an exclusion of your way of being in the world or did you, through the specificity of these shows, could you really resonate with the characters?
0: Well, I did always have this yearning to want to see myself in those shows. So I wanted to create, and this is, we'll get into this later, why I wanted to become a a writer, uh, was so that I could see Uh, people like me, stories like me, um, people like my family. And what I loved about those shows is the feeling that they gave me when I watched them. I love being on the edge of my seat. I love watching characters that I absolutely am in love with, seeing how their stories unfold. And so I think the real mandate for me that it was being planted in the back of my mind was that I wanted to combine those two things to have that sort of sense of suspense and a real love of character and combine that with stories and faces that were so familiar to me growing up.
1: Yeah, well, actually, I look forward to to getting to that in more detail, too, because it feels like you've had some opportunities to make that happen in some of your recent work. Um, I'm curious, you in, in an interview I read with you, you mentioned that a lot of women in your family watched soap operas. Um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is true.
1: <laughs> yeah, so so make the uh, make the argument for for the soap opera. I'm I'm curious to, to hear how that resonated with you as a young storyteller.
0: Oh, I'm such a fan. I'm such a big fan of soap operas. Uh, I still occasionally watch uh, General Hospital, which is still on to this day, uh, which has been like, oh my god, I feel like it's been 60 years or something. That show has been on the air, but soaps are wonderful. Uh, places where you can explore issues. And I think that's what I loved about them the most. Um, of course, you have the craziness of, you know, who stole whose husband and all of this other madness. But underneath it all, sometimes, especially in the soaps that um, Agnes Nixon created, there was an opportunity to really dig into some issues on storylines. I, My mom literally watched every soap opera that ABC offered. So she would watch all my children, one life to live general hospital. And then she would also watch Oprah. And so she, every night she would have this four hours of television to watch. And sometimes I would, you know, curl up and watch them with her. And, um, some of the storylines that that they covered were really interesting things like, um, interracial marriage, um, abortion, uh, the AIDS quilt, um, cancer storylines, so many really interesting stories that would be tied into characters that people for pretty much all of their lives had identified with. And so you would really have a great, I would say a platter of really interesting, really cool arenas that soap operas would tell in the most dramatic fashion ever.
1: Yeah, you know, I was, I was reading about how in Latin America they tried all of these initiatives to sort of encourage family planning or female empowerment uh, through pamphlets and education courses, but what worked the best was introducing storylines into the telenovelas, into the Latin American <laughs> equivalent. Um, I am is-
0: not surprised. That's great.
1: Yeah because because you have a, a, you know a lot of women who run families and um have are concerned about those issues they just they they're easier to digest in story form I think and you know I didn't watch a lot of soap operas my grandma did but um mm-hmm. oftentimes when I'm watching a show I really love like Friday Night Lights or Mad Men or even Game of Thrones, I'm thinking like some of the most emotional me- moments for me as a view- viewer are actually sort of manipulative in the way that soap operas can. You know, they're, they're very, they're these exaggerated um, character beats. Uh, and so I think I have a lot of respect for soap operas even if I don't watch them a whole lot.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely, and I like to joke and say that, you know, Game of Thrones, which is one of my favorite shows, is pretty much a soap opera with dragons. you know you have these great you know these houses that are fighting for this throne and it's so dramatic and you know the brother and sister of one family are going against the brother and sister of this other family it's really just epic storytelling and i think sometimes soap operas get a bad rap uh when they shouldn't
1: yeah no game of thrones i i teach a class in paris every summer i use there's like a 15 point lesson I teach about how Game of Thrones is just this master of conflict. Uh, And Mm -hmm. a lot of it is that those those soapy little turns where basically everybody has to suffer and everything has to turn back on itself and and relationships have to fall apart and come together. So um, I can truly appreciate that. Um, So you were this uh, voracious reader. You enjoyed many different kinds of television shows. Then Presumably, you're a teenager. You're reading more and more Stephen King. Uh, I read also <laughs> that, that you were a John Steinbeck fan. Is that is that true?
0: <laughs> you have done your research, yes.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a Steinbeck <laughs> fan, too. I'm, I'm Canary Row is my book.
0: Um, oh, nice. I love Canary Row. I think my favorite, I used to be torn between two, but then I decided I want my absolute favorite, which is The Grapes of Wrath. And I think... First of all, when I read it, I read it at a pretty young age and it was actually assigned to me for extra credit because I had finished uh, Of my and Men and I was bugging my teacher for something else and she just wanted to quiet me. And so she was like, if you're up for a challenge, why don't you read The Grapes of Wrath? And I went to the school library and I went to check it out and I saw how thick it was. I was like, oh. But I dug in and I read it and I absolutely loved every single page. And I think the thing that Steinbeck conveys probably better than anyone is that that sense of family and being a part of this community. And to see that this family, who didn't look like my family, but was experiencing some hardships and poverty, it really gave me a new perspective. It made me realize that other people could, who didn't look like me could have the same struggles as my family um, had. And the idea that they would all move and try to have this better life it just really stuck with me. And all the trials and tribulations that they go through as they travel from Oklahoma to California was really, really powerful and moving. And it really stuck with me.
1: Yeah, that feels like that might that might uh, resonate again as we as we continue our conversation. Um, not only because you write about families a lot in the shows that you write for, but also you've written for shows with characters that don't look like you, but yet are struggling with very very serious problems. Um, so let's let's take us to the turning point. Um, you, you're done with high school. You're going into college. Did you go into college thinking you might want to eventually become a screenwriter, a television writer, or was there some sort of epiphany moment? Um, during the course of your education?
0: I did not. I went to college thinking that I wanted to be a lawyer, (laughs) actually, Uh, because everyone in my family is very blue-collar, and I felt like to pursue writing, which seemed like an indulgence or a hobby, would be the wrong thing to do. (laughs) And so I figured if I had to get a real job, I would get a job working uh, to. In government or politics or law, something that I was that I was actually had a true interest in, uh, but that if I really sat down and thought about it, <laughs> wasn't my passion. And while I was pursuing that uh, in Orange County at UC Irvine, I loved it. But my mom sort of sat me down as I was applying to the schools and said, "Why are you doing this? You <laughs> are a rebel." you hate rules. Why don't you follow your passion? And she knew I'd been writing um, on the side as I was pursuing this bigger interest. And uh, that was really my epiphany moment. It was her just kind of taking me by the shoulders, sitting me down and saying, it's okay if you want to do this other thing. And it was her giving me permission that really sort of opened up this whole entire world for me.
1: Good for mom. I mean, maybe she just wanted to keep hearing your stories, huh?
0: <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, fantastic. So um, Irvine, did you go to Irvine f- with law in mind? Is that what made you choose Irvine? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I was a political science major. So I knew I was going to do something in the realm of that. And I tell people all the time I thought I was going to be a civil rights attorney and to help save the world. And uh, that was my intent, but uh, I decided to go in a different direction.
1: And you ended up at AFI, if I understand yeah. correctly. Uh, how, mm-hmm. did, uh, how did you end up choosing that place, and how did that um, affect your, your career path?
0: I had been interested in AFI for a long time because I was, again, that kid watching a ton of Turner Classic movies. And one of the documentaries that I watched was called uh, 100 Years, 100 Films. And it was produced by AFI. And it was just about the first 100 years in cinema. And I would watch that documentary over and over and over. And just, I was just so in love with it. And uh, when I was thinking of film schools, I knew that it was sort of tucked away in the hills near Griffith Park. And I decided to secretly, when I wasn't truly letting myself believe that I was going to do this. It was still going to be a pipe dream. I went and did a tour of AFI. Huh. And I we walked around the campus, and I just remember feeling electrified. And when we got back to the main hall, Warner Brothers Hall, uh, there was a poster hanging on the wall. Now, my favorite Charlie Chaplin film is City Lights. And the City Lights poster was on the wall. And I said, this is the school for me. <laughs> and I said, I don't know if they want me yet, but I want them. And I applied very early. I remember after I got in, uh, one of the uh, the people that worked there in the administration office said, your application was the first application that arrived before anyone else's. I got all my material together. I wrote a short uh, film. After shortly after that visit, and I sent in some other writing material as well. But that was truly the moment where I was like, "This is the school. I knew that was the one." And I just hoped against hope that they would uh, want me to.
1: And was that was that writing sample? Was that your first? And did you go out and buy a final draft and, and write a script <laughs> for the first time, or was yes. that really? That
0: was absolutely that because i uh, did, did not have experience writing scripts i had written short stories and plays and so i written different things but never a script um i had read some and i had to teach myself on the fly so i went out got final draft which was insanely expensive <laughs> and i ta- taught myself how to write a screenplay and I sent it in, and that was the reason why I also sent some other things as well. I was like, okay, if I didn't exactly do this short film right, please know that I think I know what I'm doing, so here's a short story as well, and here's my uh, essay saying why I think you have to take me, and luckily, they were persuaded.
1: And you got in and and so how how, and actually just so my audience knows afi is american film institute is that is that
0: that's correct yeah the conservatory
1: yeah and final draft is a is a fairly expensive at least when you're young uh, screenwriting software uh and and so what did you learn there um was it was it a key part of of your career um how did that how did that um send you in the direction that you ended up going
0: It was key to my career because my background before that had been in politics and in government. I was a community organizer for the Children's Defense Fund and I'd done an AmeriCorps fellowship. So that was my background, even though I was still writing and loved stories and loved reading and and all that stuff. Uh, But what I needed moving forward, if I knew that I, I wanted to fulfill that dream of You know, one day writing some show like The Twilight Zone or The X-Files or um, back then. Also, uh, I loved Soap, another Soap, Melrose Place and all these crazy, you know, um, all those great shows. Um, I knew that I had to learn the structure and the form and really study the greats. And that's what AFI gave me. I would spend so much time again, I'm revealing my nerd card right here. <laughs> I would spend so much time in the school library just poring over scripts and just reading them. And I would talk to the librarian all the time uh, about things that she loved that you know maybe weren't on our uh, syllabus lists. And I would just nerd out and I was in love with every second that I was there. And I happened to have really wonderful teachers there many of them nominated for Academy Awards who would give me notes on my scripts and talk to me for ridiculous amounts of time in office hours. And uh, it was great. And I spent two years there learning from the best. And then I got pushed out of the nest and had to go into the real world.
1: I, th- I think your nerd card did you well, and I suspect you still use it um, <laughs> because that's the one thing that's hard to teach. Sometimes people want to, um, you know, they, they they like reading, they like, I guess it's, it's difficult for them to read as a writer sometimes. And I think as a screenwriter, it's especially important because it's just a different language than what you see on the screen. And so in a way, it feels like you were doing half of the professor's work because you were just familiarizing yourself with that format. Were you familiar with like, with screenplay structures, three-act, five-act screenplay structures before AFI, or was that your crash course?
0: I knew a little bit, uh, because when I really decided that I was going to apply to film school, I'd, I grabbed a, a few books, um, the how-to books, you know, and I, uh, of course, I'd read, we can get into some, some of my favorite, you know, self-help books, but Uh, or writing books. Sure. But, um, I mean, like, on writing, that's not about screenplay writing, but um, Joseph Campbell's book about the hero's journey was great. Um, The Art of Dramatic Writing was another one that I read. Um, Save the Cat, Story, Robert McKee. I just tried to digest as much as I could, and then when it was, you know, time to study, I would read the actual screenplays, and I would compare it to what was actually shot. And so, say for example, Sunset Boulevard. I would, you know, go read Billy Wilder's wonderful screenplay, and then I would watch the film and just try to get a sense of how to match those two things up. And uh, it was a real great education.
1: So, you, so you have your your nerd card and your your <laughs> your uh, your master's degree and. If I understand correctly, was Shameless sort of your, your foot in the door?
0: Yeah, that's the first job that I got. Okay, so, uh, so
1: take, us to, take us to Shameless, uh, because I think this is something that a lot of people will be curious about, about sort of being minted as a, as a master's degree student, but that it's, a, it's, a fairly, it's not a simple journey to getting your first real credit. So what happened after your degree and before Shameless?
0: Well, after that, I got different jobs working in the industry, and I would apply to fellowships and contests. One of them was the Warner Brothers Television Writing Workshop, and I ended up getting into that fellowship, and it's run like a simulated writer's room. So you spend six months working with the head of the program who tries to show you what it's like to be in the writer's room. And so you pitch ideas, you write outlines, you write a new script, a spec script, and after that you go out into the world and you try to interview for pilots for the upcoming television season or you interview for existing shows. And me, (laughs) liking the type of shows that I like, the shows, the John Wells shows that were on at the time were Shameless and a show called Southland which is about cops in LA. And I knew that I could write both of those shows because obviously Southland, I'm from LA. I had a ton of stories to pitch. I knew some people who were police officers or had been. And for Shameless, my family is insanely shameless. So I knew I had plenty of stories to pitch for that. And so I was able to get an interview uh with John Wells and the entire writing staff of Shameless which was probably the most terrifying moment of my young career <laughs> at that moment. And uh yeah, we had a great interview and I waited uh, a very long week while they interviewed other prospects and they all ended up deciding to pick me to be the staff writer which was a fantastic moment.
1: I bet and and what do you reckon? How much of that was writing samples versus just sort of worldview versus Moxie and extroversion and being charming in the in the interview?
0: I think it was both, uh, because I would get updates every so often from different people who would say, you know, the writers have met with some other candidates, you know, they're reading the samples, but they still like yours the best, so don't worry or I would get an update because it was like the longest seven days I've ever waited to hear about something and I would hear someone say okay they like this writer's writing but when they came in for the interview they tanked the interview so you're still in it (laughs) and so I think especially after getting the job in hindsight John is very much about being able to work with others in the room, but he is very, very passionate about words on the page. So it's both things that he was looking for, and I'm happy that I fit the bill.
1: Awesome. Well, I'm I'm curious about the writer's room itself, but another another um, factor I want you to break down for me when you're writing for a show like Shameless or or even Parenthood, which you wrote for later, which are both about families. Which it sounds like a theme you were drawn to early. Mm-hmm. How, how much are you drawing on personal experience? or stories you've heard in real life, and how much are you drawing on research and, and other factors of bringing your ideas to the writer's room?
0: For me, it's always a combination of both because I, I like that I have this reservoir of stories from my family and my friends that I could draw on. But also there are times when you know, something requires research, um the the best example I can give is is actually not from Shameless it's from Parenthood one of the storylines during the season that I worked on the show was about a uh, one of the siblings adopts a kid from foster care and I knew that that was going to become a big storyline that season and so my mom had a friend who was a social worker and I called her one Saturday and interviewed her for an hour about how that worked, what it would look like as the adopting family, what are the the rights for uh, the, the person who, if they knew who the parent was, if that would provide a complication to someone doing this. Um, and in addition to that, my aunt adopted a child from foster care. And so I had the very real experience of, of that to draw on. And in the combination of that research, I discovered that one of the things that they like to do during the process is they have this ceremony at the end that's almost like a wedding ceremony where the parent and the kid are joined in the judge's chambers. And that was something that I pitched for Jason, Katum's in the writer's room for Parenthood, and he just loved it. And that ended up being something that was the end note for that storyline uh, that season. So this beautiful moment where this family is joined forever came from both some experience and a lot of digging. So those are the moments that you have to be able to bring every day in the writer's room.
1: Yeah, and that that feels like good good writerly instincts too. I mean, there's that... Robert McKee advice of, of that your universality comes out of the specificity, you know, that if you try to be general, you'll, your world will be as dry as chalk, but if you can find mm-hmm. those moments, and then it also sounds, you use the word complications, which is a, which is a nice tool to have as a storyteller. Um, it deepens the conflict. Do you, in, in these, in this sort of research, are you sort of, do you have your antenna up for complications? Um, or always. You, yeah.
0: Yeah. I just think it's a, it's better for characters if there isn't a straight line from point A to point B. It's a great detour, and you get to see how far they'll go. They'll go for something. You get to test them. I remember the first, <laughs> the first day in the writers' room on Shameless. One of the storylines that season was Frank, of course, up to no good, and he is pursuing this woman who has a heart condition <laughs> because he wants to basically get her money and (laughs) he would do anything to get this woman's money. And that includes trying to take her to bed uh, so that she can have a heart attack and he can get get her money. And it is just the most insane and ridiculous and crazy storyline, but you get to test how far he'll go because this woman really refuses him at every turn and uh, he keeps pursuing it. So it's just great. You can do it for great comedy, or you can do it for great drama and, and tears and emotion. Uh, but it's a really fun tool to have in the tool bag.
1: And is that something that comes out of a group discussion in the writer's room, you know, pushing the envelope with it with the character like Frank? Or is that come out of does a single writer have that as their task?
0: Oh yeah. We, in every writer's room I've been in, we always throw out a bunch of ideas, everyone on the team. So everything from (laughs) Frank uh, pursuing this woman, trying to make her have a heart attack to uh, another storyline we did was Monica, the mom, the matriarch of the family coming back and ruining everyone's lives And being off her meds because she's bipolar. That was another thing we talked about. Um, So everything is on the table. And it's just about making sure it fits into the blue skies picture of what you are trying to build for the season. Do
1: you find yourself picking up certain kinds of contributions, like um, certain character beats that you that you specialize in, or are you a big picture person? And part of the reason I ask this is I'm curious to know like, how diverse the writer's room was. Were you often speaking as a woman or, or speaking as a person of color, uh, or were your contributions just all over the place?
0: Well, usually I'm the only person of color in the writer's room, so there's that uh, early on, when, on my first two shows, uh, there were more women. So, on Shameless, the writers room was half women, half men. So, pretty good numbers. Then on Parenthood, there were quite a few women uh, and men. And then, as I've gone on, I've I've become the only woman in the writers room. Hmm. So, so that's a challenge. Um, but I'm usually always the only woman woman of color. Uh, there have been a couple of times when I've been fortunate enough to work with another woman of color but uh i think that that never prevented me from being able to pitch or write stories for other characters so in the writer's room you're not just relegated to writing the black character or the woman character you write for all the characters you write the entire storyline and so in that way if the writer's room is run right uh, it's a very egalitarian system.
1: Do you find yourself policing things on behalf of of women or, or people of color, like saying this minor character is might be poorly poorly realized, or are people pretty sensitive to to depictions of of women and people of color in in these sorts of writer rooms?
0: Oh, I'm always the one raising the red flag. Okay. <laughs> Before I would I would be very wary of doing it because I was you know, the youngest person in the room and I was the low man on the totem pole. And as I've gained more experience, I've become more vocal and more adept at bringing things up. But I think there are always going to be characters that are underserved. And unfortunately, more times than not, it's usually a, a, a character who is likely a diverse character or a a female character or an LGBT character. And I am of the mind that those storylines should be just as robust as the others. And so, uh, I try to make sure that we're giving those characters enough stuff to do. And when we're (laughs) going down bad roads, like, Hey, maybe we shouldn't kill the only black character. I try to (laughs) bring that up as well.
1: Yeah. Um, and it feels like maybe that's that's even one merit of having a diverse writers room is that just it covers blind spots, you know, um, that maybe a lot of these omissions are not malicious, but it's just people aren't really thinking big picture type stuff. Um, so, were you more quiet at the beginning of your career in the writers room? How does how do you, um, in not just about issues of diversity, but just issues of story in general, how do you navigate when to speak up and and when, when to hold your tongue a little bit?
0: It's a challenge. You know, when I first started out, I was a little quieter because a lot of the people in the room had 20 years of experience on me. And so I never wanted to make the wrong step or say the wrong thing. And also it was a real climb for me to get there. And so there's always the fear of, oh my God, if I do something wrong, it'll be taken away. But what I learned is that the reason why someone is bringing you into the writer's room, especially when you're a staff writer, is because they feel like you're going to add something to the story that maybe some of the other people can't. And I trusted in that more and more as I gained more experience. And so it's just like, anything when you practice a little more you become better and so at the beginning i was very scared to pitch and to throw out ideas and then i got better and better and then you learn everyone's gonna have some ideas that don't fly and it's gonna be okay and so i think that's the the great takeaway for people is to just remember that that it's okay if uh, sometimes you're not gonna bat 10 out of 10 (laughs)
1: Sure. Yeah, no, I'd imagine that's part of the, the creative fermentation in a place like that, is that if you're afraid to throw out um, semi-good ideas as well as perfect ones, then uh, it's not going to have the same energy. Now, an interesting part of your career is that you, um, you were a writer for two fairly iconic family-oriented shows – and then suddenly you were in the writers' room for for Turn, which is sort of a, a history nerd show, right? It's a about <laughs> the spies during the Revolutionary War, and then into the Badlands, which is um which is a martial arts action type uh, post apocalyptic show. So, um, you certainly didn't fall into uh, one sort of typecast writing style. Was it a was it a transition? Are the writing rooms different when you're working for different genres? Or how did you how did you navigate this moving into these new sorts of shows?
0: It was pretty seamless for me because I'm a big genre fan, and I had a lot of samples that were in that vein. And so, if someone were to just look at me, they probably wouldn't know that I'm such a history nerd and know. And I have read countless books about several different wars, but really specifically the Revolutionary War and World War Two. Huh. And and so I, I just love those genres. I love that history. And so when I sat down for my interview uh, with my future boss, Craig, I, Craig Silverstein, who was the showrunner of, of Turn, I think half the reason I got that job was because we just sat there and talked for like an hour and a half about all the cool stuff uh, that we loved about that era and that time period. And uh, so it was pretty seamless for for that because uh, research has always been my friend, and I don't just do it for jobs. I do it just because I like it and I'm curious. Uh, and so it, it, even for
1: it feels like if if you uh, if you're a buff for World War II books and Revolutionary War b- books, then you could probably talk forever to retired white men, including my father, um, across America. I mean, that's Definitely. just such an old dude uh, type thing. Uh, so that's great. And it's great that it, that it fed back into your career.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, the same thing happened on Into the Badlands. I love to write action. And so I'd read a ton of, you know, action scripts and written several of my own. And so when I was able to Sit down and speak with um, my future bosses on that show. We were able to just talk and really relate about some of the things that we that they had already done season one, and I was coming on in season two. Really, just relate to some of the things we wanted to amplify for this new season.
1: You're you're active on Twitter. Is 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 your dog making an appearance? (laughs) I'm
0: so sorry. He's barking.
1: (laughs) That's what's his name, or is it a her?
0: It's a he. His name is Xavier. After. Uh, professor Xavier from the X-Men.
1: <laughs> Fantastic. Welcome, Xavier. Um, so, uh, you, you know, you're active on Twitter and, and um, you know, Into the Badlands is one of those genre type shows that that attracts a fervent fandom. Do you read Twitter comments about the show and are you tempted to be influenced by audience feedback in a show like Into the Badlands?
0: there is the temptation but luckily (laughs) by the time it airs we've already written the episodes and they're already in the can so i am a big fan of twitter and i love our fan base they're really passionate they live tweet they're awesome Uh, and i do read their comments but it doesn't really impact uh what we're writing for the season
1: now in this kind of show that has a strong martial arts emphasis have you familiarized yourself with martial arts as part of your research is that something you that you think about or is or is that more of the ballet that's the backdrop to the to the characters you're working with
0: Oh yeah we reference martial arts all the time because for every episode we try to plan a fight uh, at least one and usually, we have to give it a frame of reference for our fight team who uh coordinates the fights and really builds them out. so yeah, I had to watch a ton of martial arts films now that there are people in my writers in our writers' room that are far more adept at the uh, martial arts films than I, but i I know my fair share and uh so it's great to just geek out over that stuff and you know talk about how we tie that into a character moment because what we really have grown to do on the show is not just have fights for fight's sake, but we really want to build it into the story so that it's revealing a character or revealing something emotional for them. And I think the the best example of that, my favorite episode from a uh, fight from last season was uh, talking about season two is there was a fight between the widow and Tilda that was very high stakes and this was just uh, a mother and daughter going at it and it was so emotional and i just remember the twitter reaction when that happened people were like oh my god you you killed Tilda. <laughs> it was uh, yeah. it was i had to go on twitter and and really calm everyone down and say hey guys we we, we didn't do that but that's how good the fights are that we were like oh my god the widow kill, killing Tilda is actually something that fans thought could happen or would happen, which is great.
1: Now, do you travel with the show? Do you go on location when these are being filmed, and how does the location influence how those fights are are written?
0: Yeah, we have we shoot in Ireland, and I've been to our sets in Ireland. So we have some sets that are our standards that we go to multiple times. But then we have locations that we go to that are absolutely gorgeous. And so you always have a sense of, in your mind, they will send us location photos so we know what the space is like. So that's how we write the fights. And we literally write every move of the fight into the script. Um, But then on the day when our fight team is shooting it, they may change things, they may add things, they manipulate it to make it a thousand times better than what we have written on the page. So they, all the kudos and love uh, should go to them for their, their brilliance because the fights are in the costumes, I believe. And of course the story are the signatures of the show.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm interested in the intersection of, of fights and character because there's some interesting female characters on the show and it's, it's a pretty racially diverse show as well. So what is it like to create these characters? I guess, hopefully this isn't too convoluted of a question, but just to create a character in a martial arts movie that is a woman acting, you talk about a mother-daughter fight scene, a woman acting on her whole being instead of just um, a person with boobs doing a man fight. You know. <laughs> how, how do you bring character in what could be seen as a two-dimensional um type sequence you know just straight action
0: uh well first of all the character of the widow is probably the most complex character on the show um she you know we've revealed more about her in season three uh her backstory as a cog or what in our world is known as a slave um and her ascension to become the Baron and they call her the widow because she had to kill her husband on the way. And so (laughs) she's already a very complex character. So you start from that and then you add the dynamics of she's fighting a war. She's trying to lead her people. And this is a very tough time for them. I mean, there's literally people dying every day in the middle of this war. She has a broken relationship with her daughter figure, um, she's rekindling a relationship with uh, a young man from her past. Uh, and so there's a lot of things that go into her character and her, her fights. Um, in this season, in one of the episodes that I wrote, uh, a lot of that just slams together uh, mid, midway through in episode five, where uh, she has to go rescue <laughs> her daughter, her daughter from the woman who tortured her most, her, almost her entire life and save all her people all at the same time. And so that is a big epic fight. Uh, and that's how we tie it together with character.
1: Wow. Um, are you having fun? I mean, this sounds as
0: <laughs> always
1: <laughs> as a, as, as a, as an outsider, or at least a relative outsider, this sounds like being able to live in your imaginative world and and just look at possibilities in a show like this sounds like it would be a lot of fun.
0: It is the best job in the world, I have to say. You know, uh, I even when I'm up late at night trying to figure out how to crack a scene or a new way in to uh, a certain moment, I am so grateful and thankful that I get to do this every day because it's a lot of fun.
1: That's great. Is there is there ever an issue with work life balance? Do you, is 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 the writers' room uh, sort of a workaholic environment, or are you able to to get some time away from your creative life as well?
0: I'm a firm believer in work hard, play hard. <laughs> so okay. if you work a, a lot of hours, you got to make sure you uh, have some downtime. So usually, I spend a lot of time with my friends, uh, my family. I love to replenish by really intaking some great art, so I go to museums, I see a ton of plays, I like to travel, although I haven't been able to travel as much as I want, but uh, that's always on my list of things to do at the end of the season.
1: Yeah, how long have you been doing this for a living? Six years. Six years, wow. Wow, you've done a lot in six years. <laughs> uh, I, I was going to ask you about writing advice, but I might end on some some advice because I, I bet my listeners are are curious. Um, but I'm curious to know what what's on your plate next. Um, is there more into the Badlands? Uh, I know that you've you've uh, been involved in some adaptations and some feature type stuff. What's uh, what are we going to see from you in the near future?
0: Yeah, I'm working on a couple of pilots for AMC. Um, one is a very straightforward dr- drama. Uh, it's inspired by a book called "They Can't Kill Us All" by Wes Lowry, who is a wonderful Washington Post reporter, and it's about the start of the Black Lives Matter movement. So I'm doing that for AMC, and then I have another. I'm, I'm curious
1: about that actually. That's that's nonfiction. So does that is that a whole other uh, field to learn about or? Are you using the devices of fiction to, to dramatize a nonfiction book?
0: Yes, I'm using the device of fiction to dramatize a nonfiction book. Um, mostly so that we could take dramatic license with some things um, to be able to say if you want to add a love story to mm. something that didn't actually happen in real life. So you want to make sure that you have your bases covered in that sense. Um, but it's been a great, great ride working on that. A lot of fun. And then the other thing that I'm working on for them is, um, in of course, genre. And it's a sci-fi story uh, with time travel. And um, in addition to that, uh, I just signed a new deal with AMC, which I'm very excited about. And uh, with that, I, I've been given the green light by the executives to... Also start an inclusion initiative, which addresses some of the things that we talked about earlier in the conversation, which is usually I'm the only woman and the only person of color in the room. Mm. And I think that this is just me trying to do my small part to help. And part of the initiative is that I would be able to help some young emerging writers, emerging voices uh, really navigate their way through the development process at AMC. So I'm thrilled to be doing that.
1: So it's sort of a formal opportunity to be a a mentor or are you more of an administrator?
0: Uh, A mentor. So Mm -hmm. I would help mentor and supervise them and help them uh, through the process. It's something that as a young writer starting out, I always wished I had. I wish I had someone to give me advice and help me uh, through the process. So um, I think it's, it's going to be a really cool thing for uh, young writers to partake in. That
1: sounds great. Well, in, um, in more concrete and craft terms, uh, what kind of advice might you give for people who are, who are dreaming of writing for television or even just you know maybe making their own videos and creating their own dramas on their own time? What, what, in terms of, of craft and, and, and good practices, what would you tell them?
0: The best practice that has served me <laughs> the best is to always be writing. I think that applies to obviously writing scripts um features and television but also across genres because i wrote short stories i wrote plays I, I wrote comic books i still write comic books and so sometimes you'll have an idea or you'll have a thought about a character that doesn't quite fit it's not big enough to be a feature but it could be something else you could make it into a, into a short story or into Um, a comic book. And I think that those pieces of material will serve you well because you only get better with practice. I'm a big fan of the Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hour rule. If you just keep grinding and keep practicing, um, good things will happen.
1: And I think that's, that's wise advice because if that character is inside your head and inside your head and inside your head and not on the page, then it's going to be hard to tell whether she or he is going to be, like you said, big enough to carry a series or if they're just, you know, part of a short story. Um, Absolutely. Related question. What makes a good script?
0: Oh, I think uh, a combination of things, uh, a good characters and an engaging story. Uh, I tell people all the time what I'm, I'm not looking for any specific thing. I can, read a, a western or an action script or straight-up drama or a comedy what i want to be at the end of turning those pages is moved in some way whether it's moved to laugh whether it's moved to cry whether it's moved to scream you know i i want to be moved at the end of reading something so uh, that's the goal no matter what the genre is
1: yeah that, that even goes back to the soap opera principle or the game of thrones principle um that i i I can watch these shows and know that i'm being manipulated a bit but my my emotional reaction to those shows is it's why i I still remember certain episodes of friday night lights or game of thrones is that is that emotional factor Um, absolutely yeah Uh, last question uh what what stories are you dying to tell what's your grapes of wrath
0: why why do you ask me this hard question that's so hard (laughs) Oh my goodness. Um that's hard. I, I have so many stories. I I'm in my office right now and I'm looking. I have a board full of projects and uh all of them right now are my dream projects. So <laughs> so I just go down the line and do a little work on each one every day.
1: All right, Latoya Morgan, um thanks so much for talking to me today and good luck with everything.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: And 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 uh shout out to Xavier.
0: <laughs> I will, will give your love. Thanks.
1: This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to LaToya's many TV projects, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpots.com. This episode was produced by myself and Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.